to the book of 1 Peter. As you, uh, if you've been coming a while in our church, you know what we have been doing. For those of you that are new to our church this morning, just visiting, we tell you what we're doing. We started our church about a little over two years ago, and uh, we got looking at helping uh, young couples, singles, moms and dads with children, uh, really establish their relationship with the Word of God. You see, we believe what the Bible has taught for, for hundreds and hundreds of years is the fact that the Lord's coming back. And we believe that God's people have a responsibility to learn the Bible, to uh, use the Scriptures in everyday life, in, in their husband and wife relationships, and raising their children. And uh, I learned after being in the ministry 35-some years, I have learned that the biggest problem that most people have when it comes to learning the Bible is when they read the Bibles, they don't know what to look for. They really don't understand what they ought to be trying to get out of the Bible. Most churches, and I've been associated with churches all of my life, most churches take the position where the guy preaches, but, uh, you know, it's a thing where you're kind of left to your own to figure it all out. And, of course... That'll never work. That's why so many of God's people, young Christians, get discouraged. That's why they never really grasp the Scriptures and never really grow. This world, and I really believe this, this world is filled with God's people who have never grown past the day they got saved simply because that pastors, churches, other Christians have never taken the time to help them really learn the Bible. So we started from the very beginning when we started our church taking the position that, that we would teach the Bible not only in a group session like we have now. Uh, on Thursday night we have a time where you can ask any question you want to ask about the Bible. And then I have a standing offer with anybody in my church that I will spend an hour a week one-on-one. -on -one. You come over to my house and I'll sit down and I'll help you learn the Scriptures. You want to do that as a husband and wife, that's fine. You want to do that as a as a single, that's fine. It doesn't make any difference. My number one goal in this church is to help you learn the Bible. It, I don't do you any good if we have church every Sunday morning and we go through everything that we go through and you don't have some place you can go to say, hey, Bob, can you break this down for me? And that's what we want to do. So we started, remember, going through some material that really laid some groundwork of how you grow spiritually. And then after about uh, oh, eight or nine months of that, we started to go through the Bible book by book. And I wanted everybody to have the ability that if you wanted to study a book of the Bible, that uh, if you've been coming through the whole time, you would have the notes. If you're not, you could get whatever particular book of the Bible you wanted or get them all in a series. You don't have enough, you don't have the money to pay for them, you can't afford them, That's we'll pay for it. I just want you to have truth. And it's one of those things where we do everything we know how to do to get you the Word of God. I can't make you do anything with it, but I can at least do my job to make sure I get it to you. So we started coming through each book of the Bible. And I began laying it out book by book, showing you how that Bible really kind of fits together. I wanted to set it up so that whatever book of the Bible you began to read in your own personal reading you would have kind of an outline form that you know what to look for. Remember I said when I started out this morning that the hardest thing was reading the Bible is what to look for. I want to give you all those keys. 
I want you to be able to understand everything, how the Word of God lays out and get it all together. So we have come through now, and we're almost through. Once we finish these books, we're going to continue our study. Sunday morning is our time where I really officially teach you the Bible collectively. And we deal with the major issues that you need to learn as Christians in this church. And then on Thursday night, we deal with the overpouring uh, of that, things that maybe you didn't quite understand or things in your own personal Bible study or, you know, whatever the question may be. And then one-on-one -on -one is where we break it down where you can grasp the concepts. And I offer that to you. In uh, adjacent to that, you all know we have the discipleship program where I pair you up with another person that uh, is like-minded like you are to teach you the basic building blocks of the Word of God. That's what this church is all about. Well, today, we've come to the book of 1 Peter. And uh, when we started the book of Hebrews, which was two books back, I told you that these books are called the general epistles. If you look through your Bible in the top, you'll find that the first four books are called the Gospels. Then the next book is called simply the Acts of the Apostles. Then you have Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, right on down the line. And uh, you will find that the books from Romans to Philemon are all uh, the, uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the churches. When you get into the book of Hebrews and you go on from there, you're going to find that these books are called the general epistles. They're called the general epistles because they're not directed at anybody individually. They're not to a man like Titus or Philemon. They're not to a church like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. They're not one of the uh, uh, early books that deal with the nation of Israel, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These books uh, generally form the transitional books that we talked about, bringing you from the church age through. And we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. You're going to find that when you come to uh, 1 and 2 Peter, that these books are, again, aimed at the nation of Israel going through the great period of time called the Great Tribulation Period. When you, now, let me give you another key about your Bible. Your New Testament is basically built around two guys. And if you can remember this, it's going to really help you a lot with the Word of God. The two men that your New Testament is built around, first of all, is a man by the name of Peter. Second of all, a man by the name Paul you're going to find that those two men have key rules in the New Testament church. Peter's ministry will always be toward the nation of Israel. Paul's ministry will always be toward the Gentile in the Gentile church. You want to remember that. Those things are very important. Peter, if you remember, all the way back in Matthew chapter 16, Peter was the man that the Lord Jesus Christ, while he was still on this earth, gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those keys to the kingdom of heaven, you'll find that Peter uses those keys to give the kingdom of heaven and the gospel with it to the nation of Israel all the way up to Acts chapter 7. And I showed you this when we studied the book of Acts. Israel makes its final rejection in Acts chapter 7 and from then begins the start of the church age. And two chapters later, Paul gets saved and Peter phases out and Paul takes over. And I say now, you want to remember, the two main men that your New Testament is built around is Peter, who will always be dealing with the nation of Israel. When you get into Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 15, and again in Galatians chapter 2, 
when they meet down in Jerusalem to, to thrash out some of the problems they were having. Very obvious that Peter is really the kingpin down in Jerusalem with that early Christians down there where Paul is dealing with the missionary trips and going to the Gentiles. And out of that meeting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or excuse me, Acts chapter 15, they come to the conclusion that Peter's ministry is going to be in Jerusalem, established in the New Testament church, where Paul is going to go to the Gentiles. And that's what comes out of that meeting. And you're going to find that all the way through your Bible, that in the New Testament, Peter is for the nation of Israel, just like Paul is for the church. Therefore, the book of First and Second Peter is going to fit right into our transition that we've talked about that puts these books aimed at the nation of Israel. Now, you know what? The theme of the book of First Peter is the suffering of God's people in time of trouble. Now, that's the theme of the book. Now, with where we have already been and what we have already learned, you can very clearly understand now how that this has that double application. Doctrinally, this book is Israel, the people of God, suffering through the tribulation period. Inspirationally, it's a picture of you and I as God's child going through the trials and the tribulations of this life. So it's one of those places that we talked about last week where even though it is not written directly to you, much of it lines up with Paul's teaching. Compare sometime the sufferings in 1 Peter with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, or other places like 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We know, and we talked about this last week, that the Pauline writings, the Pauline books, are the books that really uh, minister directly to us. And where some of these other books line up, then we can apply it to us. And when, you, when it doesn't, then we've got to apply it to the nation of Israel. Remember, I told you, the first thing that you look for when you're studying your Bible is the context of who he is writing this to. So you want to remember the theme, and you need to put that someplace at the top of your Bible there at 1 Peter at some point. The theme of this book is the suffering of God's people. That's the theme of this book. Now, along with that, the book of 1 Peter holds one of the greatest keys in all of the Bible, and it's a great piece of this puzzle putting together called the Word of God of why the nation of Israel missed the first coming of Christ. We'll talk about that in just a little bit, but it's got, it holds probably the greatest key. If there's anything that the book of 1 Peter does for me above everything else, it puts that piece of the puzzle in the great picture of the Bible of why the nation of Israel rejected Christ when He came. And that's a key factor here we're going to see when we get into chapter 1, all right? Now, let's break down the book. You've got five chapters. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, you're going to find that those two chapters deal with being holy for God and the suffering that goes along with it. So when you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you're going to be reading about somebody trying to be holy for God and yet, there's suffering that goes along with being holy for God. And you can see how that fit with Israel in the tribulation, how it fits to your life and my life. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 show you how to have fellowship with God even though you're suffering. Having fellowship with God even though you're suffering. Then chapter 5 talks about how to give glory to God even though you have to endure through the suffering. 
great, great, great themes of those, how that break books down, uh, book breaks down. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and this is where we're going to start now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we find a great concept here, and this is where I want to begin to show you this great key. But let's go to the Lord this morning and ask God to bless us. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you do for us. We love you. We thank you, Father, for those that are here today. May the Word of God be real in our hearts, real in our lives, and may you do the work, Holy Spirit of God, that needs to be done today. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, chapter 1, and this is chapter, has uh, one basic message, one theme. But there are a number of verses, support verses, that go around this theme that are great verses. And we could spend all day in chapter 1, but I want to give you the main concept because here's your key. Here's your key. Here's your key. It says in verse 9, I want to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 9, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets, Old Testament, have inquired and searched diligently, who professed of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it, the Spirit, testified beforehand, watch it very carefully, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. That is one of the greatest keys in all of the Bible that shows you why the nation of Israel missed the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and now has to go through the impending tribulation period and get reinstated with God at the second coming of Christ. This is without a doubt the greatest key. All of my life, all of my life that I've been in churches, I've heard the teachings and I'm sure most of you have heard this. If you've been associated with the average Baptist church uh, in your lifetime, I'm sure you have heard this. This is what a man says when a man does not understand the Scriptures. When I hear a preacher say this, when I hear a Christian say this, I may have a guy, I may have a man who loves God, I may have a man or a person who uh, works their backside off all day long for God. But let me tell you what I also have. I know I have someone who does not understand how to put the Scriptures together. I've heard this all of my life. How many times I've heard that when somebody wants to explain the Bible to somebody, they say, well, in the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. And in the New Testament, we look back to the cross. How many of you have heard that in your life over the years? You've heard it all your life. Now, truly, no question about it, we look back to the cross. And here's the mistake people make. They make the mistake of putting our mindset into the nation of Israel. They make the mistake of not, at the same time, if you would ask the average preacher, the average Christian, what is the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, they would tell you that it is the same. Those of you that have been around here for a while now, you know that it's not the same. We have taken much time to explain it. We don't have time to do it this morning. If you want to know the difference, See me afterwards, you can come over, I'll sit down with you and I'll walk you through it. No problem whatsoever. But of course, it is this failure to see the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven that leads to the bad teaching and the heretical teaching that the Old Testament saints look forward to the cross and we as New Testament saints look back to the cross. Any man who makes that statement concerning the Old Testament does not know his Bible. 
My Bible tells me all through the Bible, and when you come to Hebrews chapter 11, which is that great chapter that deals with the, uh, the nation of Israel, it clearly says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16 and Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 that Abraham, he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He didn't look forward to the cross, Christ dying on the cross. This passage in 1 Peter tells me very clearly and plainly that that was the main problem. They couldn't see the sufferings of Christ. And the Bible says that Abraham, as all the Old Testament saints, when they looked forward to the coming of Christ and the promises, it wasn't about Christ dying on the cross. It was about that millennial city that God was going to build the nation of Israel and give them. And that's why Abraham looked for a city, not a crucified Savior. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. His kingdom was the kingdom of heaven. He is looking for a literal, visible Jerusalem that has a literal, visible piece of land that literal, visible 12 tribes dominate and occupy. And that's what he was promised when he met with God back in Genesis chapter 15. He is not looking for any Savior to come down and be crucified. He's not running around on the back of a camel singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. He's not going through the Old Testament trying to find and look forward and think about Christ coming. He is looking for a millennial city with a millennial Jerusalem with a king sitting on the throne. That's what he's looking for. This is where the problem come in. This is what the great key is in 1 Peter. He's saying down here in these verses that we read that there's two things testified in the Old Testament through the prophets. One of them is the suffering of Christ. That would be the first coming of Christ and the crucifixion. The other one would be the glory of Christ. That would be the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. One of the strangest phenomena in all of the Bible, reading the Old Testament, is you will find the first coming of Christ, the sufferings, and the second coming of Christ, the glory, stuck together in the same verses. They are side by side. And what he's saying here, that the Old Testament prophets couldn't figure it out. They were looking for a king and a military dictatorship to establish a kingdom. They knew what that was. They couldn't figure out what the suffering was. And that's what the Bible says down here, verse 11, searching what? or what manner of time this spirit, they couldn't figure it out. And that's what threw the nation of Israel off. I heard one time, I read in a book Clarence, Lark, uh, Clarence, or Clarence Larkin wrote, and he, he illustrated it so pretty. He said, you know what? If you're looking at two mountain peaks, two mountains, and those mountains, and you're looking at them straight on, he says, what you see is two mountains, and it appears that you have one mountain with two peaks. If you're looking at it straight on. Then he says if you get to the side, he says you clearly see a one mountain here and another mountain here and a valley in between. The nation of Israel didn't have the perspective that you and I have. They saw the first coming, first peak, and the second peak and thought it was the same thing. Because we have the New Testament, we now have a side advantage, and we see that there are two different events with a church age in between, which is the valley. That's what Israel could not see. And that's why they're not looking forward to the coming of, of the Messiah to die for them on the cross. Their Messiah is their king. 
When the angels showed up to the, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they said he is the king. And they could not figure it out because the key, the suffering of Christ in the Old Testament, together with the glory of Christ, are stuck side by side. You see it in Jeremiah 23, Genesis 49. It's all through it. I could give you a hundred places. Now, simply put, the Jew couldn't see it for one reason. You know why? Because he kept getting other gods in his life. He kept getting away from God. And the reason why he could not see it is you're told in Matthew chapter 13, verse 14, that when Israel, at the first coming of Christ, he quotes a prophecy given by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 that says that seeing the nation of Israel will not see and hearing they will not hear. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. In other words, they could not see in the scriptures the difference between the first coming and the second coming because they had sin in their life. They were constantly out of fellowship with God and God would not reveal it to them because of the hardness of their heart. It had nothing to do with Christ dying on the cross. They weren't looking for a crucified Savior. They were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. They were looking for the millennial reign of Christ that was promised to Israel, which they will get, Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9 as we saw it. And simply put, they could not grasp it because of sin in their life. You know what? It ain't any different than you and I. You and I cannot get anything out of the Bible when we have sin in our life. You understand? The key to learning the Bible is not your education. The key to learning the Bible is not your aptitude. The key to learning the Bible is your personal, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. And when you let the Holy Spirit of God dominate you, He will lead and guide you. When you have other things in your life that push the Holy Spirit of God out, you won't see any more out of the Bible than the, the Old Testament Jews did. They missed that great principle because of sin in their life and the continuance of that sin where they just would not follow what God said. And when you take that path, the door of revelation becomes shut in your life and my life. God's Spirit wants to teach you as a young man and a young woman, as a mom and dad, whatever state you find yourself, God wants to teach you everything He has in that book. But it is dependent on your personal relationship and your walk with Him, not me. That's why I said I can make all the offers in the world to give you everything about the Bible, lay out the Bible everywhere, shape, or form. But you know what? I can't make you do what's right with it. That's where your personal accountability and relationship with God comes in. I can't make you be a good father. I can't make you be a good mother. I can't make you be a good husband. I can't make you be a good wife. I can't make you raise your children right. I can't make you do what's right in your marriage. I can't make you do what's right at work. I can't make you make the right decisions in life. All I can do is point you to a book that has every answer you need in this upside-down world to even your life out and make the right decisions. But I cannot make them for you. I can't. I can't hardly make them for myself. Let alone make them for you. But that is one of the greatest keys. The greatest keys in all of the Bible to help you understand how it all lays out. And then in chapter 1, oh, two of the greatest verses that I know in the Bible on winning people to Christ and what salvation is. You know, I, I appreciate you guys so much. And I, 
nothing, uh, nothing is, it, it gets more exciting to me than when my people just want to learn the Bible. And I had a, a couple that wanted to come over last week after church, and they wanted to have me show them how to get somebody to Christ. Another couple found out that I was doing it, and they said, well, can we come over? And I said, yeah, come on over. And I sat down and I showed them how to basically take somebody through the Scriptures, and I'll do it for you, how to win somebody to Christ. Well, let me just say this to you. Here's two more verses for you. I mean, these are great. Now, come over here in chapter 1, verse 18. Now, here it comes. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversations received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, I want to confess to you something. Salvation has been made very confusing today. And you can go to any kind of church that you want to hear, and you can hear every way to be, bapti- every way to be saved. Some people teach you've got to be baptized to be saved. Some people teach you've got to join this particular church to be saved. Some people think you've got to do good works all your life to be saved. Some people think you earn your way. Some people think that you've got to be baptized in their church, in their baptismal, that their water has some kind of special cleansing agent that saves you. And I never understood this. I never, and I know I'm just slower than the average person, but I have never met two clearer verses that clearly says that you get saved by the blood of Christ being applied to your sin through the Word of God, not by tradition, something that man makes up, not by something you do, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. You know what that tells me? If you and me just had to get baptized and go to heaven, then why did he die? Why didn't he just say, you all get baptized and that's all you got to do? Why did he agonize and suffer on the cross and shed? Why did God put his son through the humiliation of dying naked on a cross, being whipped and being beaten, if, whoops, all we have to do is just say, get baptized and you're okay? If joining a church did it for you, why did he die on the cross in such an agonizing fashion? Why didn't he say, just get, join a church? If good works would get you to heaven, why in the world did my Savior hang there from the sixth to the ninth hour while all the forces of hell ripped at his soul, agonizing where he cried out to his Father, my God, my God, why, why did God forsake him on the cross if you just had to get baptized, join a church, or live good works? To me, I don't see a problem. To me, I know from the two clearest verses in the Bible, that if you're going to get saved, and maybe you want to get saved, I don't know. Maybe you're thinking about it. I don't know. But if you ever do get saved, you need to know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. That's silver and gold. From the vain conversation received by the tradition of your father. They won't save you. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, without blemish and without spot. I hope you get saved someday if you're not saved. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you ever get saved and you ever get snatched from the jaws of hell, it won't by being baptized, it won't by being joining a religion, it won't by your good works, it'll be born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. 
Simple as I know how to put it. I get asked all the time what kind of church we are. And I say, well, I'm a, we're a Baptist church. And that doesn't seem to do it for them because they got all kinds of Baptists. Somebody say, well, are you a, are you a Southern Baptist? No. Are you, are you, a, are you a full, full free will Baptist? No. Are you a full gospel Baptist? No. And then they always ask the question, are you an independent Baptist? And I say, no. And they say, well, what kind of Baptist are you? I'm a dependent Baptist. You ever notice what's in a name? I watch names, how people name churches. They wind up being what they name it. These independent Baptist movements started out good, but you know what? You know what they got? They got so independent, they got independent of God's Word, God's Holy Spirit, and God. I don't want to be independent. I want to be dependent on this book and the Holy Spirit of God. I'm a what kind of Baptist I am, I'm a dependent. Somebody says, are you fundamentalist? No, I'm not a fundamentalist. What's a fundamentalist? Well, a typical fundamentalist is not what I want to be. He has no fun, preaches a lot of damn, and he's mental. Fundamental. That's not me. I like to have fun, and maybe I'm a little mental. But you know what? I believe more than just the fundamentals. You see, I'm a Bible believer. I believe that Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover, including the cover. I'm not one of these guys that just say, well, I believe God inspired it someplace and then lost it along the way. Let me tell you something. I believe in God's mind from the beginning of the foundational world. He had a written word that he was going to give the man in the Old Testament form and then the completed New Testament form that was going to be exactly perfect and without error. And I'm going to say this respectfully, and I don't mean any disrespect, but if my God can't write a book and save it and preserve it and give it to me, then he need not to be God. Why, he's no different than Buddha or anybody else. The difference that I have, the difference that I have as a Bible believer from any religion on the face of this planet, including Baptist fundamentalism, is I have a book that is absolute and perfect, and I can bet my soul on it, and if you don't have that, then you don't have anything that the rest of them don't have. I got a book, brother, that's bought and paid for with blood that I wouldn't even know there was salvation through the blood of Christ. And it tells you, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, comma, by the word of God. I have the incorruptible seed. Somebody says, well, there's errors in your Bible. I had a Christian tell me one time there was errors. A, a, a man of God told me that there was errors in my Bible. Just like he was talking about some encyclopedic of Britannica or someplace. Ain't no errors in my Bible. My God gave me a Bible that's perfect and complete. You know why? Because that's the only way. It's the incorruptible seed. I don't know what one he had. Mine's the incorruptible. It is perfect. I'll tell you why. Because through it is where my salvation is found. You know what? God couldn't keep it straight when he wrote so many things down. How you know he kept it straight in the verses that tell you how to get to heaven? No, no, no. You do what you want to do, little fella. I got me a book that God gave me that is from heaven. It parachuted down from heaven, landed in my backyard, and I got it. I'm sorry about you. He says it's being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Hey, you know what? You're not saved here this morning. There's never been a time you've ever given your...
heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't know for today, if you would die today, you'd go to heaven. I hope someday you find Christ. I hope someday you find him as your own personal Savior. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you ever get it, you're going to have to get it by the book. No other way to get it. Then we come into chapter 2. And chapter 2 is a great study. Chapter 2, now, now so far you've been able to see how we've been able to apply these things both ways. We get into chapter 2, can't do that. Chapter 2 is a great study on how, why God rejected Israel and then how God is going to restore them at the end of the tribulation period. Now you and I know that we are living in the times right now. I hardly expect to get through this service this morning before the rapture comes. I believe that that close. I believe the Middle East and everything that's going on in this world, and I believe the nation of Israel and the Middle East and the terrorist attack and all the things, there's no question about that, that it is, that it is, it, it is built around a format that God is structuring things because God's on a timetable. And there's no greater place in the Bible to see why God rejected the nation of Israel and then how He's going to restore them Starting in verse 5 of chapter 2. Read along with me. Now this sounds confusing. I'm going to read it and I'm going to break it down real easy for you. You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. A holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures. Behold I lay in Zion chief cornerstone. Elect. Precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, wherefore they also were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You see now, it can't be talking about anybody with the nation of Israel. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which hath not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now that's, that's a lot of verses here. Let me tell you what he's saying. This is a great passage. And if you remember our Thursday night as we came through topical studies, we talked about this. Here's what he's saying. This is real easy. Let me break it down for you. All right, first of all, in verse 5, here's what he's saying. God wants the nation of Israel to be a great spiritual house. When God called Abraham out back in the book of Genesis, he says, I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. God's plan has not changed. Israel have rejected God. Israel has thrown God off. And so God now has to deal with them in a different way, but God promises to Israel God is going to establish them as a great spiritual house. That's why all through the Old Testament, into the book of Acts, and in the book of Hebrews 8 and 9, you find the nation of Israel called the house of Israel. That's the house. All right, verse 6. This house, Israel, that God is going to build, started the building in Genesis chapter 15. As all houses built have to have a cornerstone. Now the cornerstone is the main brick or the main block or the main corner from which the, you start the building and then the building is tied into it from there. It's called the chief cornerstone. 
Now, in our study, that will be the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when God wanted to build this house, He sent them a man that this house was going to be the chief cornerstone on which this house would be built. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. You see it in Romans chapter 11, verse 9. Verse 7. This cornerstone, the builders, the leaders of the nation of Israel, disallowed. What does that mean? It means they rejected him. That's the first coming of Christ. This whole thing is a picture of the nation of Israel being in sin, God wanting to build them as a spiritual house, a great spiritual house, sending them the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone on which he was going to build the house of Israel, and the builders disallowed it, and they crucified him. What happens? Now, by the way, this is, the, this is the whole back of Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. Remember I told you Peter is to the nation of Israel, and from Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up to Acts chapter 7, Peter's preaching all the sermons. And this is why when he preaches to the nation of Israel, it says down here in verse 7, look at it, it says in verse 7, it says, uh, it says uh, that the trial of your faith being much more precious, oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter, chapter 2, it says uh, verse 7, it says, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. You know what Peter said when he was preaching in Acts chapter 2 to the nation of Israel? He said this. He says, Therefore, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Israel, God wants to make you a holy nation, a holy house, and he sent you his son to be the cornerstone. You rejected him, you killed him, and this same cornerstone that you rejected, that the builders disallowed, God is going to take this same Jesus and make him Lord in Christ. What did he make him? Chief cornerstone. That's what he made him. Now it goes on in verse 8 and it says, and here it comes. Here it comes. The chief cornerstone was Christ that they rejected. They killed him. Now becomes a stone of stumbling. Now becomes a rock of offense. The Old Testament passage here will be Isaiah 8, 14. Now, God, it is the same way with you and me. You hear about Christ coming down and dying on a cross for your sins. You reject it and go your own way. That same stone that God sent you to become eternal life now becomes your tombstone. You reject him, he's going to reject you. It's as simple as that. Israel rejected him. Now, the rock that God sent them that was going to be the chief cornerstone of the building of the nation of Israel now becomes a stone of stumbling. They break their neck over it. It becomes a rock of offense. They hate the name of Jesus today. And finally, when you come into Daniel chapter 2, you'll find the great Gentile nations coming down through history, culminating there at the second coming of Christ. This smiting stone, this, this stone that was the corner, who the builders rejected, who became a stone of stumbling, became a rock of offense. You find in Daniel chapter 2, it becomes the stone made without hands in Daniel 2.45, and it becomes the smiting stone of Daniel 2, which breaks the feet of the Antichrist and all of the world kingdoms at the second coming of Christ. 
Oh, what a great chapter that is that shows us exactly how God is dealing and why He's dealing with the nation of Israel. He sent them the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the head cornerstone of the nation of Israel. They rejected it. That same stone they rejected becomes the same stone they trip over. A rock of offense which winds up becoming the smiting stone that destroys the world of the second coming of Christ. He says in verse 9, you're a chosen generation, that's Israel. A royal priesthood, that's Israel. He says, you're a holy nation, that's Israel. He says, you're a peculiar people, that's what Israel's to be. Then he says in verse 12, just in case you couldn't miss it, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be your good work, they may, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God, here it comes, in the day of visitation. Now, for most Baptists, the day of visitation is Thursday night. That's not what we're talking about here. The day of visitation is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, defined in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3. The day of visitation is the day that Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ comes back to visit this world. That is one day you do not want to be home when the visitation person knocks on your door. You want to have gone in the rapture and nobody home is a good thing on this day. This day of visitation, wherever you find it in the Bible, and I'm just kidding with you. I mean, you don't want to be home, but this day in the Bible, the day of visitation will always be the second coming of Christ. And it's at the second, and what he's saying in verse 12, that at the second coming of Christ, all the Gentile world will know who the Jews are as God's people. And this is exactly as it's laid out in Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9, and our great chapter, if you remember, from Thursday night in Zechariah chapter 14. Now we come to chapter 3. <clears throat> and chapter 3 uh, is, a, is a principle that can apply either way. Chapter 3 shows basically that the true relationship with God is what's on the inside, not on the outside. And this is something that God's people have a tough time with. He says there in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Likewise, uh, ye wives, be to subjection to your husbands, uh, that they may obey not the word, that they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, uh, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting of hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God a great price. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, your wives, giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel, <coughs> and as being heirs together in the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one toward another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Now, this thing breaks down here <coughs> in three things of instruction. First of all, verses 1 through 6, he gives instruction to the wives. Second of all, in verse 7, instruction to the husbands. And then in verse 8 through the end, of, or down through verse 22, he gives genuine for everybody. Now time and again, guys that preach this miss the point. <clears throat> and we don't want to miss the point today because the point's a very important point. <clears throat> How many times have I heard a preacher get up and he says, when he's quoted out verse 3, Likewise ye wives be in suggestion to your own husbands. Before he gets any farther, all the men yell, Amen, praise glory to God. Or they think that's a verse they can beat their wives over the head. You need to be in subjection. So if I want to go out and buy a, you know, a $65,000 motorboat and we ain't got it, you've got to be in subjection. That is not what it is saying. That is not what it's saying. Then he gives instruction to the husbands. 
And then in verse 8, uh, verse 222, he gives general instruction to everybody. And of course, you've got to see what the point is here. I've heard, I don't know how many times I've heard, <clears throat> in fact, it was last Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I forget, I was flipping through the thing there. I always like to see if the world's still around when I get up in the morning, you never know. And I was blowing through there, and there was some old guy on there and preaching, you know, and he's a, I don't know what he was. <clears throat> I don't know what he was, but I know what he wasn't preaching. He wasn't preaching the truth. And he's preaching on, he's preaching this verse. And he was talking about verse 3, whose adorning, let it be the outward adorning of the plaiting of hair and the wearing of gold. And he was preaching that women shouldn't fix their hair and should never wear any gold because it's worldly. And I sit there, with me, and then the camera panned down, and I saw that most of the women obeyed what he said. Because they didn't have any hair fixed, and they didn't have any gold on. I mean, it looked like a bunch of dead people walking around in black, Everybody had black dresses on. The men had to wear white shirts and black ties and black slacks. And the whole thing was down through here that the preaching is, and this is where the heresy comes in. The whole concept is, you see, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to say. That's why you got to have a context. If I wanted to say it was okay to do drugs, I'd take over there in Matthew where it says, you know, that Jesus was high on a mountain. See? See how it works? And if I wanted to say it was all right to lie, I'd say, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. He maketh me to lie. And stop right there. And then if I wanted to say it was okay to drink, I'd say he make me to lie down by the still. Say, leave the waters off. You can make it say whatever you want to say. I mean, if you like motorcycles, David's triumph was heard throughout the land. I don't know what else to tell you. You can go wherever you want to go. But you can't go wherever you want to go if you've got a context. Now, I was listening to that old boy preaching. I've heard him preach all my life. He's coming down there, and he's preaching. I mean, but let me tell you something. God has, this is, if you don't hear anything else out of my sermon today, get this. This is the best thing I'm going to say. God has a monkey wrench that will fit any nut in this world. I don't care where you go. When you try to subvert the word of God, and when you try to get out of that thing, you're going to hang yourself out the dry. The only thing dumber than the guy preaching what I just said is the people listening to him. Because if you look at the context, look at this thing. Look how God fixes the man. You can't beat the book. He's up there preaching. You lady, and he's a windsucker. He's one of those guys that goes, and you ladies shouldn't, and you men shouldn't. You know, he, he, I don't know why they do that. I mean, maybe he's got small lungs. I don't know. But anyway, He's coming down there, and he says, he says, you women should not be the, let not the adorning of your, of your plaiting of your hair. He says, you ladies like spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars on fixing your hair. You go in there, and you spend $200 getting your hair dewed up and all fixed up, come back out, go to sleep, and it's a mess again. What are you going to, and he's just going on and on and on, and then he gets on the gold. And he says, and he says, boy, I just walk down the street and look at the gold. I mean, they got gold on their feet. And I never have understood why you women wear rings on your toes, but that's okay. And he says, he says, he says, he says, and they got, they got, they got gold everywhere. They got gold hanging around their neck. They got gold in their ears. I've seen them have gold in their nose. I've seen them have gold this and gold that. He's going on and on. And then he preaches and preaches and preaches. And you know what? He says, you shouldn't. Fix your hair. You shouldn't wear gold. But if you read the verse free, it says, Whose adorning let it be not the outward adorning of the plaiting of hair. There's the hair wearing of gold. Well, the putting on of apparel, you can't wear any clothes either. 
See the problem you get into when you try to change that book and make it say something it doesn't say? If you're going to preach you can't fix your hair, you're going to preach you can't wear any gold, and you've got to preach you can't wear any clothes. Because that's not what it's saying. What he's saying and the point that he's making here, you never prepare the outside of the body more than you prepare the inner man. Living inside you this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, let it be, verse 4, the hidden man of the heart. You never, you never, and I'm telling you right now, I know we live in a legacy in church period, and I'm telling you, I know it's true. I know it happens, but I'm telling you, it ought not to happen. You should never look better on the outside and you look better on the inside. And I don't, I don't know who did and who didn't. And I don't care. I'm just preaching this morning. I'm not, don't take this personal. But let me tell you something. I know how it is in our house. I know how it is in probably most homes. I know how it is with me. I, I know how it is across this country. You get up, you know, and you rush around. And first of all, you stayed out too late Saturday night. You wouldn't do anything bad. You just stayed out too late so you're groggy, can't get up, and your mind's not thinking well. So you get up in the morning, you know, and you're moving slow, and you're doing all this stuff, and you got all the kids to get ready, or you got yourself to get ready, and you do this, and you do that, and you get ready for church, and you're coming to church. And I'm glad for that. Praise the Lord. I'm glad you're here this morning. Don't misunderstand me. But the bottom line is most of God's people this morning never took 10 seconds to prepare themselves for the preaching of the Word of God. And when they get here, it's just a matter of, here I am, give me the Word of God. And then they wonder why they go out and say, well, I just didn't get anything from him today. I'm telling you, you have to prepare the inward man and never. I mean, I think, yeah, I'm not against wearing fixing your hair. I, I, I'm not against wearing gold. I'm with old Bob Jones Sr. He said, if the barn door needs paint and paint it, man. Hey, I'm with you. I'm not against any of those things. I think that rings on your toes and bells on your toes or however the thing goes, I don't care. I think it's great. I have no problem. I'm not a prude. I think you ought to look nice. I think you ought to have fix your hair. I think you wear gold necklaces. That's fine. I think you do. I mean, I, I don't care. That's not the issue. The issue is don't fix the outside better than the inside. Now, I'm going to say something to you, and I know we're in a learning process here. And it's part of the learning. My Bible says, Psalms chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me, and he heard my cry. He brought me also up out of the miry pit and set my feet upon a rock and established my going. That's the day you got saved. He had put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, and many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord, it says. You know what? I know it's a learning process. But I'm just going to tell you anyhow because you've got to learn. Singing is just as important as preaching. Amen. This church ought to just, in a song service, ought to just lift the roof off this place. You know what singing is? Singing is how you prepare the inside that you get your heart ready. I mean, when Danny's up there and he's singing, there's power, power, power in the blood. Brother, that ought to put your heart moving. When he starts singing, all hail the power in Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, it ought to just motivate your heart. When he sings, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty state. Hey, that's the day you got taken out of the miry clay, and God set your feet upon a rock and established your goings. 
It was a new time in your life. We come in here, and I'll tell you what, I don't know what some of you are doing. I sit back there in the back. Now, John, don't take this wrong. We've been knowing each other a long time, haven't we? And I love you. You love me. You die for me, John? I'd die for you. But you are the worst singer in the world. No, no. I'm going to tell you. I stand back there and hear him sing. Makes my eyes water sometimes, John, i got to tell you. But, brother, you belt it out. He's back there, and I thought, I, thought, I thought a car lost his tire, and the rear rim was dragging on the, on the road out there. You can preach, John, but you can't sing. I can't sing either. I'm terrible, but I like it. You know why? It doesn't matter if you can sing or not. It's a matter of what you got in your heart. Amen. You don't sit around in a song service and trade recipes for your cookies. You don't sit around and figure out what you're doing or who's where, who's what. You come in, you sit down, you pick up a hymnal, and when we leave, she needs to come to me, the lady that owns this place, and says, what did you do to our ceiling? It is five inches higher than it was. It ought to be lifted up because of the praise of what you got in your heart because what you got on the inside is what you really got. And I know we live in a Laodicea, and I know a lot of you are young Christians, and you haven't got that far yet. Well, I'm telling you, Man, when you come in here, the singing is out of your heart. It is the praise of your heart for what God has done in your life. Go read Psalm 41, 2, and 3. It is where you are at. And when there's nothing there, you got nothing to sing about. When it's got the joy, 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 joy down in your heart, man, then you got something to sing about, even when you can't sing. John and me is the only two guys in the world who can sit back there and sing together and we know it's a duet and everybody else thinks it's a trio. <laughs> it's okay. He said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Let it ring. I have never understood that. I've been down to Chief Stadium down or Chief's Cathedral down there and I've watched those guys and, you know, and I mean, it used to be the same way with the Royals, but, you know, they're not much to sing about anymore, but bless their hearts. I feel terrible for him. I, we, need, we need to have good sports. And I'm not much of a baseball guy, but you know what? I mean, I, I wish we would do better. I don't know anything about it. I know somebody gave me four tickets to the Reels game, and I left them in the seat of the car one night. And I told Barb, I said, you know what? I said, God, right in our neighborhood. And I, said, I left those four tickets to the Royals right on the seat of the car. I said, I, she, I, said, I got to go. She said, it's, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, well, honey, you know, they were in plain view. She said, well, go get them. I went down there, and sure enough, somebody broke the window of my car and threw in five more tickets. See, that's one of them stories that isn't true. <laughs> hey, at least I tell you. <laughs> amen. Are you saved this morning? Amen? amen. No, no, no. Are you saved this morning? Amen? amen. Then you ought to sing about it when you sing the glory of God that saved you. And then he gives you a great verse down here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Always be ready. Unsaved man, let me tell you something. They see the difference in your life. Romans 14, 7 says, no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. Somebody's always watching your life. They're watching you. They're watching you. Then we get in chapter 3, verse 21. A great principle on the concept of baptism. 
He says in verse 21 of chapter 3, The like figure where to even baptism doth also now save us, not putting away the filth of the flesh, but an of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now here's one of those verses that they like to take and say, See there? See there? The Bible says, Baptism also doth now save us. So they like to take that, but you see, you can't just take that. That's like Jesus was high on a mountain for drugs. Look at the parentheses underneath of it. Not putting away the filth of the flesh, you see. There's salvation. In other words, every time you read the word saved in the Bible, it doesn't mean saved as salvation. What he's saying here, that baptism saves you from having a bad conscience toward God because God wants every New Testament believer to be baptized. That's all. This is one of the greatest definitive verses anywhere in the Bible on baptism. You know, next Saturday afternoon, we're going to have a baptismal service. And you know what? It's simply as this. If you, need to be, if you have been saved biblically and you have not been baptized scripturally, you say, what do you mean by that? I mean by a New Testament, Bible-believing church. I'm not talking about some charismatic cult group church out here. I'm talking about a Bible-believing New Testament, Bible-believing church that teaches the Bible. That is the authority by which you get a baptized. You say, well, I was baptized. What is the authority that you were baptized under? Well, I don't know. Well, you know what? You should have found out before you got baptized. That has everything to do with it. Somebody says, well, why do you have to be baptized anyhow? Well, somebody says, well, it's the first obedience to God after you're saved. Well, I never found that in the Bible, but maybe you're right. But I don't have to go any farther than this. You know what? I know that baptism represents, it represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When he died, the Bible says that he died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. When you get baptized publicly, you are outwardly expressing what has taken place on the inside. And so when we put you under the water, we put you under and bring you up. I had a man ask me one time, well, I'm a, he said, I'm a Lutheran. We sprinkle. Why don't you? I'm another guy said, I'm a Methodist. We sprinkle. Why don't you sprinkle as a Baptist? I said, because you ever been to a funeral? Uh-huh. Well, in a funeral, you know what they do? They put a guy underneath when they bury him, right? So we put him under the water, buried in the death, bap, death raised in the light. Ever been to a funeral? You don't take dirt, stand a guy up and throw it in his face. A burial is underneath the ground, so we put him underneath the water. Now somebody says, well, why do I got to be baptized? Well, I don't know what else to tell you other than this. You start in Romans and go all the way to the end of the New Testament church, go all the way through history. Every born-again, saved, New Testament person above the age of accountability, when they got saved, they got baptized. Everybody. Everybody. Why? Because it's an answer to a good conscience toward God. You want to have a good conscience toward God, don't you? Then get baptized when you get saved. Somebody says, I don't understand it. Well, you don't have to understand it. You just got to do it because it's a good conscience toward God. That's how you start. doesn't save you. It just comes down to that place where you have publicly testified outwardly what God has done for you inwardly. And that's why he says it's a like figure. When Christ went up and died, he went under the gr ground and he came out. We baptize you, it's under the water and you come up. Not to save you, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but of an answer of a good conscience toward God. That's why. That's why. Remember the verse before? It says you ought to be able to answer every man that asketh for a reason, the hope within you, all right? You have an answer for man, you have an answer to God. 
The answer to God is a good conscience toward God that after you got saved, you follow the New Testament guidelines and the principles. You got baptized through immersion the way the New Testament church did it. It's as simple as that. Then we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a great chapter. Chapter 4 deals with the stand that you and I have to take or should take. And here again, it's to Israel, but it's also to me against the world system. Now, I know that all of us, to some degree, when you got saved, you come out of the world. Some of us come out of the world worse than others. Some of us were in worse things than others. And, you know, it's a thing where we all have to struggle with things when you get saved. Those of us that have been saved longer, we may not struggle with as much or the same things. But I feel tough for young men and women and moms and dads to get saved today uh, in the world that we live in. The world's after their kids. World's after their, their, let me tell you something. We got people that ought to be here today that aren't here. And simply the reason is, is because they're fighting a battle with the devil. And the devil doesn't want them to be in the house of God. Because even though they're saved and they ain't ever going to hell, he wants to drag them right back into the old system where they won't ever be any kind of right influence for God. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. And I'm telling you, that's why we put the emphasis on helping you learn the principles of the Word of God. Because he says in 4.1, For as much as Christ, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Now, you know what? That's exactly what you're up against today if you get saved. And that's exactly what you and I have to stand up against and I have to help you fight against. He says down through there, the first of all, the first one, he says you're supposed to arm yourself with the same mind as Christ. That's the Word of God. That's why I do the Bible the way I do it. That's why I meet with you on Thursday night. That's why I'll work with you one-on-one. That's why I teach you and break it down and spend the time on Sunday morning. I want you to have to arm yourself with the same mind. You have to start looking at the things, the people, the circumstances in your life that you've got to get rid of, and you've got to start seeing it from God's standpoint. Then you've got to realize this, verse 1. He suffered for you. Your job is to suffer for Him. But you understand how you suffer, and why you suffer. You don't suffer for the foolish things that you do in life. You should suffer for the righteous things you do in life. He says in verse 4, oh, and here it comes, guys. Here it comes, ladies. The old world, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess. You see, the old world and the old friends, they want you back. They want you back. Let me tell you something right now, and you better get this straight in your mind. You may be saved, mom and dad, but your kids probably aren't. And the devil will play the odds. He'll know he'll never get you, but if he can get you not to come to church or not you to get you dad or you mom to put your life where it needs to be, he may get you. He may not get you or your wife, but he's going to get your little boy in hell. He's going to get your little daughter in hell. He's going to get the rest of your family. Why? Because he doesn't want you to follow Christ and he wants to do everything. You'll get the old friends that laugh at you. They'll call you up. They don't understand. 
They'll speak evil of you. That Now that you're saved, they'll want to drag you back. They'll want to know why you don't run with them anymore, why you don't come to the riot, why they do all the things that you did, and they'll want you to come back, and they don't understand why you got saved because verse 5 says, Who shall give account to him, God, who is ready to judge the quick and the dead? The quick or the people that got saved, the dead or the people who are lost and wind up at the great white throne judgment. Let me say something to you. Don't let them draw you back. There's a judgment coming. Oh, I told you Thursday night, Proverbs 28, 5, evil men understand not judgment. They don't understand the judgment of God. They don't understand an eternal place called hell. They don't understand how a lost man or a lost woman dies and spends eternity without God. They don't see it. They don't understand it. They don't grasp it. And no, therefore, they don't understand the newness of your life, how you got saved. So you need to understand uh, that the world wants to draw you back. And you have to take a stand. He says in verse 12 that you and I should take it for him. Why? Because he took it for us. Oh, what, what a great chapter this is. If you're struggling, if you're struggling with the world, if you're struggling with staying where God wants you to be, this needs to be your chapter. This needs to be the place you hang out. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, second coming of Christ, ye may be glad also with exceedingly joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit, the glory of God resteth upon you, and on the part of evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other man's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him be not ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. You know what he's saying? God's people are the strangest people on earth. I've never, and I know the times that we live, I know it's all backwards, I know everything's screwed up, but let me tell you something. God's people today are the strangest people on the earth. You were saved, I was saved to suffer for him. When he was on this earth, he paid the price. He was a reproach to men. They hated him. They made fun of him. They laughed at him. And they wind up killing him. And maybe they'll never kill you. Maybe they'll never strip you naked and nail you to a cross. Maybe they'll never whip your back with a cat of nine tails. Maybe they'll never whip you to your rib cage shows out. Maybe they'll never do those things to you. But you know what? If you take a stand for him, when you understand that this thing is on God's timetable and there is a judgment coming and God is going to judge the quick and the dead and you realize that God has a job for you and for me, then you understand that you and I have been saved to suffer. Verse 15 says, we don't suffer for the, we got to suffer for the right reason. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. We don't suffer for the dumb things we do. I mean, we do, but God don't get any glory out of that. We need to suffer for righteousness sakes. And that's why he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I've told you this before, a pastor becomes one with his people by being one with his people through suffering. Not living up here and you down here, being one with them. Hebrews chapter 13, 12 and 13 says, Jesus suffered without the gate, and you and I are to suffer for him, bearing his reproach out in this world. That's the job. That's the job of every child of God. Every child of God in these last days is to understand the times that we're in. Because you know what? It may get a lot tougher before it gets better. It may get a lot harder before it gets easier. There may be some things that come down this old world. You see, we live in such an easy world of Christianity. We don't understand what it is like to be persecuted for what we believe. 
We don't understand what it's like to be in, have things denied to us. And yet, back in history, every aspect of the Christian church, every saved man and woman down through history, they paid a price for what they believed. You see, churches would be empty today. Today, they're packed out. People go everywhere. But you know what? If it was under a death threat that if you went to a church that you were subject to arrest and losing your job and maybe in some cases capital punishment, you'd find out on Sunday who really were the real Christians and who weren't. And yet you say, well, I can't even conceive of that. No, I know you can't. But brother, in this old book right here, it tells you that they paid a price for it. This old book right here tells you about the men and women that, that, that was killed, had their kids taken away from them. This book right here tells you how that they were buried in bags of snakes and drowned in the river, how they had their eyes put out with hot irons because they read the wrong Bible. This book right here tells you a price that was paid of somebody that really suffered. And the tragedy is you and I are going to have to spend the eternity with those same people who have paid nothing. Who our greatest temptation is to go back with the world and their old friends. When these people stood there, burned at the stake, these people stood there and had to deny Christ to lose their kids and they wouldn't do it. And many a mother watched their little babies thrown into a pen of pigs, wild pigs, because those moms would not deny Jesus Christ. And it's inconceivable to think of that. But it happened. I know you like to stick your head in the sand. I know we live in such a society that says, ooh, I just can't bear to think things like that. Well, you better think about it because it happened. We all need a reality check. Denial is more than a river in Egypt, friend. That's where most of God's people live their lives, in denial. Then in chapter 5, in closing, three great concepts here and we're done. And boy, this lays out what our job, this lays out why we're doing what we're doing. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 4 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples, or examples, excuse me, to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You know what our job is right now? Our job is to feed the flock. My job as pastor is to feed you, bring you up to a point. You take somebody, you feed them. Bible says in the Bible there's five crowns that a man gets or a woman gets at the judgment seat of Christ. One of those crowns is the crown of, of he's talking about right here, a crown of feeding the flock a crown of teaching somebody the Word of God called a crown of glory. And it's the, it's the crown that you get because you teach people the Word of God. And that's the job. It's not just my job. My job is to teach you, to get you ready to teach somebody else. You folks right now that are being discipled, you young Christians that are being discipled right now, you need to learn and grow because someday I'm going to give you somebody to disciple. Someday you're going to work with somebody. Somebody, somebody's going to, you're going to get somebody to work with that's going to help you. That's, you're going to help them. That's the way it is. Because everybody, that is one of the easiest crowns anybody can get of just understanding that your job and my job through the suffering is to take men and women and teach them the Word of God. The Bible talks about elders. The elders are the leaders of the church that help oversee the church with a pastor. Men who, and women who, who take hands of leadership and help oversee all the work that needs to be done. And then the second great principle found in verse 6, and all this is great, 
It says in verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Oh, and then a great verse. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You see, the way up is the way down. It's all backwards in the Bible. You want to get exalted? Then go down. The way up, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, the Bible says. If you want to keep it, you've got to give it away. It's all backwards in the Bible, see? And in the Bible, the way up is down. You, you serve him here, he exalts you there. You exalt yourself here, no exaltation over there. you got to humble yourself. Humbling in the, yourself in the Bible is simply doing what God wants you to do, realizing that you're a servant. I'm a servant. There's no glory in this. There's suffering in this. We become one with a fellowship of a suffering. And through that, in due time, you get exalted, your millennial inheritance. And then the last thing in verse 10. He says, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a great verse. What a great concept. When you teach people the word of God, when we take the Bible like we do and teach you the Word of God, when you just get saved and we work with you and we teach you and we sit down with you and we come over to your house and you come over to my house or wherever, Thursday night, Sunday morning, we do four things when we teach you the Word of God. First of all, we perfect you. We don't make you perfect and sinlessly perfection, but we perfect you for the work of God. You better clearly, in a more perfect way, understand what God has done for you. The second thing we do is establish you. People come in sometimes and they're all busted up emotionally. Sometimes they've had bad relationships. Sometimes they just had a bad life. Sometimes they just had all the ups and downs of the world. You know what the Word of God does? The Word of God puts them on an even course and it establishes them. And you can't do anything with anybody till you first get them established. And then once you get them established, the next thing it does, it strengthens them. It strengthens them. And then they learn how to use the Word of God. And then when you teach them how to use the Word of God, you know what it does? It settles you. You understand what your job is. You understand better why God saved you in Kansas City, why He put you in this church, why He allowed you and I to build a relationship in the Word of God together. And when you start teaching people the Word of God, you perfect them, you establish them, you strengthen them, and you settle them. And then they teach others the Word of God. That's the plan. That's the way that it works. Every head bowed and every eye closed.